The briefing is brought to you in association with the Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai is a place for city leaders, developers, architects and designers to come together and innovate for the future of urban spaces. It's an opportunity for the Global South to convene in the Global South. It's a testbed for real-world solutions that will shape the future of people and planet. You can hear from the innovative thinkers and inspirational voices that drove the narrative at this year's edition by listening to Monocle's special episodes of The Briefing, recorded live at Expo City Dubai in March. Find and listen to the shows now at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum 2024. Collaborate. Innovate. Transform. You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 12th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Ahead on today's programme, chaos reigns in Pakistan following Thursday's shock election result. We'll have analysis from the ground. Plus... No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. you got to pay. you got to pay your bills. There have been strong reactions to Donald Trump's remarks that he disregard the NATO treaty and urge Russian attacks on U.S. allies. We'll ask about the former and possibly future U.S. president's suggestion of changing the international order. Then... More than 80 million Americans tune in to AM every month. That is now at risk. We examine the future of AM or medium wave radio in the United States and we'll check in at the World Government Summit where 26 heads of state are mingling with the likes of Tucker Carlson, Tony Blair and Andrew Tuck. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. We begin the show in Pakistan, where four days after the surprise election result, putting jailed former PM Imran Khan's party, the PTI, in the lead, there's still no clear indication who will form the next government or who the next prime minister will be. I'm joined now from Islamabad by Lynn O'Donnell, who's a columnist for Foreign Policy magazine. Lynn, many thanks for coming back on the show. What are the official results? Oh, hi, Georgina. Uh, the, the official results put a group called the Independents in, uh, in the lead with about 101 parliamentary seats, one nationwide. Now, according to media reports, about 93 of those independents were aligned with Imran Khan's PTI party, and uh, they uh, have outstripped by numbers the man who was uh, predicted to win, the military's candidate, Nawaz Sharif, and uh, the other uh, scion of a political dynasty here, Bilawal uh, Bhutto Zadari, who heads the PPP, the Pakistan People's Party. And um, both those men are now uh, in backroom talks to decide how they can join up, who else they can bring in to form a coalition and make sure that the PTI uh, candidates, the independents, 
cannot form a bloc and cannot make government. Can you tell us how and why this election didn't turn out as expected with the military's candidate taking the, the position as it always has done? Well, I think that the military underestimated uh, the, the value of people's vote. Um, Pakistanis are constantly being told that they live in a democracy, but their votes are constantly being stolen from them and allocated to the military candidates. And this time they got out in huge numbers. There's 128 million eligible voters here and 44% of them are aged between 18 and 35. And those people have grown up in a country that has been ruled by the military, which has been um, uh, passing uh, the power around between um, the, the army itself which is ruled uh, directly, or these political dynasties I just referred to, and they're sick and tired of it. Now, Imran Khan came to power in 2018, also as a military candidate, but he decided that he was a little bit more powerful than the military that had sponsored him, and he started attacking the military. And this was a message that resonated with uh, the youthful population of Pakistan. So as one uh, person here described it to me, it wasn't so much a vote uh, on uh, uh, Imran Khan's performance as Prime Minister because that was not not good. Um, It was a, a vote for revenge, revenge against the military and against the establishment and nobody expected it. So when the counting was going on on Thursday, Georgina, and it became clear that the independents were going to sweep the polls, suddenly the counting stopped and that's when the um, the military thought it could bring in the fix, but it, it was just too overwhelming. I think um, uh, a lot of people who are observing this process believe that had the playing field been even, uh, PTI would have won in a landslide. And it still remains to be seen how the military and the establishment are going to overcome the shock and the slap that they've been dealt. Mm, Because, of course, I mean, Khan couldn't campaign. He was in jail. Even his party symbol was removed from him. Well, that's right. Um, And even so, with all of these um, efforts to completely dismantle the infrastructure of his party and jail him so that he cannot stand and could not stand as a candidate, even so, Pakistani people went out and voted in overwhelming numbers um, that would have given Khan and the PTI a landslide victory. So in terms of of what happens next, we know that, that uh, Bhutto Zadari is, is talking, uh, that, that they are having, as you say, backroom conversations. Who might form the next government and what global consequences would that have? I think, Georgina, the question of who will form the next government is still up in the air. Uh, the um, the PTI uh, will be going to the courts to request that their party can be reconstituted. And they have to walk a very fine line because if they can do that, what they will want to have happen is all those independents rejoin the party so that they um, can claim those 90, 90 plus seats for the PTI. So um, they're... Uh, uh, 
representatives, if you like, are now vulnerable to better deals. And it's being Pakistani politics. You, you can never count on somebody until they're actually standing behind you. Um, the other thing about it is that um, Khan is in prison. Now, if they go to him, uh, if the military goes to him, if Nawaz Sharif goes to him and they want to do a deal, he's going to have some things up his own sleeve. And one of them will be getting out of jail. Another one will probably be a forensic recount in every seat that they uh, claim uh, was stolen from them. And once they uh, do that, if indeed that's what happens, then PTI will win by a landslide. So um, the dealing goes on from 12 p.m. on Sunday when the final vote was uh, registered by the Election Commission. They had three days to come up with a plan, with a coalition, with some sort of, um, uh, you know, a picture of what the next government is going to look like. Um, the, at the moment, the, the implications internationally really focus on whether or not this will descend into some sort of constitutional crisis. And also you've got a military here with a, with a long history of dealing very uh, seriously with um, problem politicians. In the past, they've been executed, uh, imprisoned, sent into exile. So um, I think it's a fairly precarious situation uh, with regards to how the military reacts. Does it react like a, a rat trapped in a corner and um, and get violent and, and uh, really uh, uh, take it out on PTI supporters? There have been some minor um, skirmishes and, and uh, uh, tear-gassed uh, demonstrations across the country. Or um, does the effort of the uh, Chief of the Army Staff, um, uh, Asim Munia, to uh, bring oil to, to the, uh, and ca calm the waters with a conciliatory statement the other day, um, really indicate uh, that they don't want more chaos, that they would like to uh, bring some sort of, of um, resolution to this as peacefully um, as possible? Lynn, thank you very much indeed. That was Lynn O'Donnell in Islamabad. Now here's Monocle's Carlotta Rabello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Israel has freed two hostages in Rafah amid ongoing airstrikes, which local authorities say has already killed 67 Palestinians and wounded dozens more. The two Israeli-Argentinian men had been kidnapped by Hamas from a kibbutz on October 7th as part of the militant raid which triggered the conflict. Poland's Prime Minister Donald Tusk is travelling to France and Germany today as the three nations seek to bolster ties in the face of increased security risks and concerns at the possible return to the US presidency of Donald Trump. Mr Trump sparked outrage among Western partners on Sunday after suggesting the United States might not protect NATO allies who are not spending enough on defence from a potential Russian invasion. And London's mayor, Sadiq Khan, has called on the British government to take steps to prevent chaos on the Eurostar rail link with France when the European Union is expected to introduce a new system of biometric border controls later this year. The EU's checks mean that travellers from countries outside the bloc will have to register biometrics, including facial and fingerprint scans, at their first point of entry. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Carlotta. Former US President Donald Trump and GOP frontrunner in the next presidential race addressed a rally in South Carolina on Saturday and made some very controversial remarks about NATO. They all owed money and they wouldn't pay it. 
I came in, I made a speech, and I said, you got to pay up. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. And the money came flowing in. I'm joined now by Scott Lucas, who's an adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute University College, Dublin. Scott, I mean, this is not new. Trump does have a troubled history with NATO. That's exactly right, Georgina, which makes it even more serious that this was not just a throwaway comment. It's not a joke. This is a long-held view of Donald Trump. Back in 1988, Donald Trump took a full-page ad out in the New York Times when he was thinking about a political career, and he set out a foreign policy which said that the United States should leave its European and Asian allies. A couple of years later, he effectively said, Japan is making billions, billions of dollars screwing us. Then, of course, what we had more recently during his presidency were repeated occasions where he issued threats to leave NATO or to not defend NATO allies. Uh, he made up that story he told. There was not a president, who, European president, who came to him and said, oh, Mr. Trump, what's going to happen if we don't pay? And Trump threatened him and then he paid up. What Trump actually did in 2020 is told the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, along with French and Irish uh, commissioners to the EU, you need to understand that if Europe is under attack, we will never come to help you and to support you. By the way, NATO is dead. We will leave. We will quit NATO. The only reason why this did not happen during Trump's first term is because there were adults in the room within the American administration who held him back from being able to leave NATO. But what Trump wants to do when he comes into office, if he comes into office in 2025, is bring in the yes men at the head of American agencies that will enable him to do so. What's been the reaction to the remarks? Concern, deep concern across Europe. And again, I have to say, it's not like a surprised concern. It's just simply this reinforces the concerns that were already there. So, for example, from countries such as France and Germany, uh, you know, who have been uh, right in the center of Europe and in terms of its defense since World War II, this idea, which is, you know, perhaps we need to think about going it alone without the Americans if Trump becomes president. We need to be able to defend ourselves. I'm speaking to you now from Ireland, which is not a member of NATO, which is a neutral country. But people in Ireland today are discussing, we need to discuss what our security means as a neutral who cooperates with NATO if Trump gets in. And of course, uh, countries very close to the front line where Russia has invaded Ukraine and that aggression is going into its third year are saying, what do we do to continue to hold the line against Russia, not only regarding Ukraine, but say the Baltic states, Poland and, uh, and Poland, if Donald Trump comes in and tries to withdraw the United States from being part of that international order, which at one time it led after the uh, during and after the Cold War. Well, when, what do we do? I mean, are there any measures in place to stop Trump from, as he put it on another occasion, being a dictator from day one of a second term? You know, that's up to the American people, in part. 
in part it's up to the American people as to whether there are enough of them that will not because it's a Democrat versus Republican thing, not because it's a right versus left thing, whether there are enough American people that will not vote for a wannabe autocrat. It's as simple as that. And we'll have to see what happens for the rest of the Republican nomination uh, process and then the general election. That's up in part to the American media. Will they finally start covering Trump, not as a spectacle, not as a guy who gives them a clickbait headline, but as a man who is a serious threat if he gets back into power. And beyond that, it is in part up to those of us outside of America, whether we are in government, whether we are activists, whether we are members of militaries, whether we're in diplomatic services, which is to be able to make our own systems resilient. Uh, with regret, uh, this is a question which Europe, I think, has dodged in particular for decades that it always thought, well, at the end of the day, we don't necessarily need to spend as much on defense. We don't need our own European defense force because we're in part of an alliance where the Americans have taken the lead. That assumption can no longer be made. And is NATO funding a legitimate concern? Yeah, of course it is. I mean, it's been a legitimate concern well before Donald Trump decided he would run for office in uh, in 2015. Uh, the, you know, NATO agreed at 2014 that within a decade, uh, its members would uh, spend 2% on of gross domestic product on defense. Uh, Russia had invaded Ukraine, even then had seized Crimea and parts of the East. Uh, there was a real worry that Russia might go further. There was a real question about whether Europe's systems were fit for purpose. And so that commitment was made. And so far, only a handful of countries have met the 2% target. So it's absolutely legitimate to raise that. Indeed, as the Obama administration did, what is not legitimate is to turn that question of NATO members paying for themselves into a protection racket. And Donald Trump's protection racket, and this is what makes the statement this weekend different, because now he has put it down record. If you do not pay me, if you do not pay me, Donald Trump, then the Russians will attack you and I will let them do it. Scott Lucas, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with The Briefing. Well, next here on Monocle Radio, some news about radio. If you're listening to us in Western Europe, you'll be aware that across the continent, medium wave transmitters are being rapidly decommissioned and radio stations that broadcast on AM are either departing the radio dial entirely or moving over to higher quality FM and digital platforms. But the United States is poised to buck the trend. Lawmakers in Washington are offering AM radio an extended life, pushing back against plans by some of the country's largest car manufacturers to give up on medium wave. Washington correspondent Simon Marks reports. CBS News on the hour is the sound of news in the making. Oh, I love it, yes. And you got the Wolfman Jock Radio Show. Say no like Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. 
the classic golden sound of AM radio in the United States. It has been around for more than a hundred years. Back in the 1950s, the technology was all the rage, as Westinghouse and other manufacturers competed with each other to capture the market for home and in-car listening. I want you to be sure and see these smart new Westinghouse radios. For people who live some distance away from stations, well, here's the perfect radio, the Long Ranger. It comes in a handsome maroon finish. In fact, anywhere you live, you'll be delighted with its long-range power and beautifully clear tone. But as the somewhat unclear tone of that advertisement reminds us, over the last few decades, the quality of audio transmissions improved in leaps and bounds. So many countries are calling time on AM, known in some places as medium wave. Stations, particularly in Europe, are migrating to digital platforms as the big AM switch-off continues. And in many places, new radios no longer even include the AM band. But not here. In the United States, AM is engaged in a rearguard action to save itself from the technological scrap heap. And it might win. Most of my farmers in my local community rely on our AM radio signal. Bruce Winnikins is the owner of WRDN. It broadcasts on 1430 AM in the Wisconsin town of Durand, where it very much puts the local into local radio. Talking with Liz Deitch, she is with the Pierce County Fair. And tell us when the dates are for this year's fair. Yeah, this year's fair is August 8th through August 11th, and we are really getting excited about it. And in addition to the county fair, the town is also getting a new swimming pool. The mayor was on the other day talking all about it. Pool group has started looking at some designs, or at least coming up with some ideas of what they, you know, obviously for something like this, we want people to be creative, something to look nice, something to look professional, but but it's a pool. It's supposed to be, you know, I mean, fun. With its 2,000-watt transmitter, WRDN's signal reaches deep into the rural area where it's based. And owner Brian Winnick says it is the ability of AM to convey signals across a larger area than FM or digital audio transmitters that is key to his station's success. We do local news, local farm news, local farm markets, high school games, church services. We even have a polka show. It's because of that connection to the community. That's why people continue to listen to us. I have not yet figured out how they manage poker on the radio, but the station and 4,000 others like it has a big following. More than 80 million Americans tune in to AM every month. That is now at risk because Tesla and other automakers in the US want to give up on AM, arguing their all-electric cars create electromagnetic interference with medium wave that would prevent listeners from tuning in. I would think that if Elon Musk has enough money to buy Twitter and send rockets to space, he can afford to include AM radio in his Teslas. Congressman Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey is one of hundreds of lawmakers backing a new proposed law that would require AM receivers to be included in all new vehicles. The decision to remove AM radios from our cars and trucks puts public safety at risk. There are not many issues these days that unite Democrats like Congressman Gottheimer and Republicans like Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. I remember when Hurricane Harvey hit my home home city of Houston and the entire Texas Gulf Coast. People relied on AM radio when other forms of communications go down. AM radio is consistently the most resilient 
to help people know where to go and how to keep their families alive. And that argument is proving persuasive because the federal government's emergency management agency, FEMA, operates 77 AM facilities all over the country that can be used to spread urgent information whenever necessary. We reach more people over AM radio than any other medium can. Manny Centeno is the program manager of the nation's public warning system. We reach 90% of the U.S. population with those 77 facilities. We're not ready to give up on AM now or in the near future or in the future at all. Some AM stations are market leaders, still making large amounts of money. In New York City, the top-rated station is not on FM, it's not on HD radio. It's WABC, a conservative talk radio station, still firmly on AM. Now, it's Cats and Cosby with John Katsimatidis and Rita Cosby. We were talking about Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Well, he was apologizing today following his recent kept-secret hospital stay. And the prevalence of right-wing talk on AM is certainly fueling the desire of Republicans in Congress to protect the wave band, but Democrats recognise many underserved communities, including those for whom English is not a first language, listen to foreign language broadcasts over AM that are specifically targeted for them. You could hear it on the AM Last summer, Ford abandoned its plans to remove AM from its vehicles. Other manufacturers say they still want to phase it out. But there does now seem to be enough support in Washington to grant the wave band a longer lease on life. Meaning that if you're in America, you too will be able to continue listening to the AM radio. Many thanks to Simon Marks reporting from Washington, D.C. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And finally, the World Government Summit begins in Dubai today with the theme of shaping future governments. The conversation involves governments, international organisations, thought leaders, private sector leaders and Monocle. Our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, is participating and will be hosting sessions tomorrow. Uh, Andrew, thanks very much for making time to come on the show. Where are you speaking to us from? Well, I'm, I'm speaking to you from the venue and I must say, just for anyone who's got a picture of Dubai in their mind, over the last 24 hours, I think it's had some of the, the worst rain they have ever seen. So much of the city was a bit flooded this morning. So going like what should have been a two-minute walk turned into like a 15-minute car journey. So the, the, the issue of climate change is certainly on the agenda here as well. So what's the history of the World Government Summit? How long has it been going? Well, it started back in 2013, and obviously they were hiccuped by the pandemic like everybody else. But it's, it started as a forum to bring together government leaders to talk about what you need to regulate change, the, the opportunities in government. And I think there's, there's something really fascinating because of where the UAE is. It's bringing in a lot of leaders from Africa, a lot of leaders from Central Europe. There's, there's 26 governments uh, here who have their heads of states here. So Indra Modi is coming in, the, the, the president of uh, Mozambique's here, Paul Kagame spoke this morning from Rwanda. A lot, a lot of people are here. There's definitely a lot of uh, people with earpieces in looking after slightly burly looking people. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing turnout. And 4,000 delegates, and really across the political spectrum, they're really using their kind of, 
their reputation for trying to be a convener of conversations that are a bit more varied and independent from what goes on in the West to actually hear from people maybe who don't normally hear on a, on a plenary stage. And what are the topics for some of those conversations? Well, just this morning, we, yeah, and, and I must say this, a bit monocle conference style is like a lot of the sessions, are like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. But, you know, this morning we did hear from Paul Kagame. He was being quizzed about what his view was on on the on Gaza because you know his country lost a million people during that that terrible um, war, and he he was being asked about what he would do to bring governments together and to get conversations going. He was also really interesting on the topic of you know how African countries should be allied, whether to Russia or China, and he was just like. We're fed up of fighting the the battles that these governments, you know, uh, land grabs. We need to kind of get our own route through this. We also heard from the the head of the the World Health Organization, who was warning people that despite all that we went through in the pandemic, we're forgetting all of the lessons already. And there's 15 weeks until they want to bring out a plan for all governments to sign up to. And it's been really slow and tricky. But I must say, a lot of very, very positive conversation from the likes of uh, the, the Airbus um, CEO who was saying, look, I think within four or five years, you'll see the first hydrogen flights taking off that are completely carbon neutral. So that whether it was aviation, whether it was AI, whether it was the future of healthcare, all of these things coming up in, 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 with a government prism, but saying, actually, there's some really good opportunities here. And maybe it's not as doom and gloom as we, we see sometimes in our papers. Sounds very refreshing. Can you tell us about Monocle's session tomorrow? Well, um, I'm hosting an, an hour of uh, the event tomorrow. There's, uh, I must say, there are a few tracks. I'm doing a, a track, not surprisingly, which is about the future of our cities. And we're going to be looking at a few things. One is the notion of how you create a timeless city, which is with a woman that we've spoken to before, who's uh, called uh, Kochpum Vorokam, who's from an organization called Porous City Network in Thailand. She's looking at how you make green spaces to soak up flood water. Maybe they needed a look at that here in Dubai last night. And also with Professor Carla Ratti, who's one of these big thinkers about the futures of our cities. So how do you make a city that's ready for the future? And then an amazing panel, which I'm really looking forward to doing, which is about seamless mobility in the skies. And this is with a guy who runs a, a company called Joby Aviation, which is like the first proper air taxi service that's going to hit, hit, hit the air. And they're very, very far advanced. You know, they have the backing of NASA. They have the, the, the backing of Toyota. And he's on with an interesting guy um, who set up Zipline, which is a company that does drone delivery. But forget about your pizza. They're like the big delivery company in Africa, in, in the likes of Rwanda, for getting blood to you, getting medication to you. And so we're going to talk about, can you have seamless uh, mobility in the skies? And just yesterday, Dubai announced that it's, it's signing an exclusive contract w- um, with Joby Aviation to, from next year, have air taxis in this city. But they have to be integrated with the, what goes on on the ground. And again, so an interesting debate about how you regulate them coming in. And this is going to be the, the new Uber of the skies. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. That's Andrew Tuck speaking to us from Dubai. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Carlotta Rabello and Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Neoma Ekwe and our studio manager was Mariella Brabham. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you.